We are doing a sermon series on the life of Elijah and Elisha, who were the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And why are we looking at their lives? Why are we looking at their ministry? Because their lives point forward to Jesus Christ. Their ministry is a preview of the ministry of Jesus. There's a very um, interesting place in the Gospels where John the Baptist asks Jesus, how do we know that you're the one? How do we know that you're the Messiah? And Jesus answers, look at my ministry. He says, the blind see, lepers are cleansed, uh, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, the only place in history where these things happened before the coming of Christ was during the time of Elijah and Elisha. And what Jesus is saying is that these miracles during Elijah and Elisha's lives are not just displays of God's power. They're signs of my coming. Their, their, their ministry is a preview. It's a picture of how my grace comes into your life. In today's text, is, uh, we see that really particularly, it's a remarkably clear picture of how the gospel works. And so let's read the text. This is uh, page four in your bulletin. I'm going to read to you 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, my God, to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh, flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Larnot, Abana, and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. 
But Naaman's servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is the word of God. So I have three points. Here's the outline. We're going to see first how religion works. Secondly, we're going to see how grace works. And then finally, we're going to see the suffering servant. So number one, how religion works. So the story begins with Naaman. And in verse one, we're told that he was a great man in high regard who had these amazing accomplishments. And in the ancient world, what made a man great was not business success. It was not intellectual pursuits. But it was singularly this, the ability to win battles, to lead men in victory. And Naaman had that in spades. And under his command, he won battle after battle after battle. He was the supreme commander of the armies of Syria. And under his leadership, Syria became the greatest empire in its day. He was a national hero. But the text tells us he was a leper. Now, leprosy in the ancient world was a horrible, disfiguring disease. In the last stages of it, you lost all sensation in your body. And so what happens is that um, digits and limbs and body parts would start to fall off, and then you would die. It was a horrible death. And so Naaman was probably in the early stages of this disease, but it was the great sorrow, it was the great affliction of his life. I think the Bible is telling us something very interesting here. Because Naaman was the most successful person in his day. He'd achieved the heights of success and acclaim, but he had this one great weakness in his life, this chink in the armor, this incurable disease that was going to kill him, and it sent him on a quest. It sent him searching for an answer, which eventually brought him to the prophet Elisha. What does that tell us? Think about it. Naaman, the Syrian, would have never met the God of the Bible without his leprosy. If you read the uh, gospel accounts, you will see that almost everyone who comes to Jesus, they are the poor and the downtrodden. They are lepers and people with severe illnesses. They are flocking to Jesus, but the rich and the powerful and those with high social status, they largely stay away. They want nothing to do with Jesus. Do you know why? Because human pride and self-sufficiency is what keeps us from God. The Bible says that you can only come to God through weakness. You can only know God through your emptiness, and therefore, I want you to see Naaman's leprosy was a gift. It was a gift. If God wanted to curse you, if God wanted to damn you to hell, this is how he would do it. 
He would give you only health and prosperity. He would give you this unbroken chain of success, a life without any problems, and then you would be lost forever because you would never feel your need for God. You see, Naaman's leprosy made him a seeker. He was searching for a cure. He was searching for truth. And so in the story, Naaman hears about this prophet in Israel who has the power to heal. And then Naaman does something very strange to us, which is he goes to the king of Syria. He goes through kings. Now, why does he go through kings rather than going directly to prophet, the prophet? And the answer is because this is how ancient paganism works. Ancient religion, and this is true of modern religion as well, Ancient religion did not stand apart from the culture. It was a reflection of culture. It was an extension of the power structures of this world. And at the top of the power structure was the king. And underneath the king were the prophets and the priests. They were actually on his payroll. If you remember, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, the story of the contest at Mount Carmel, you had 400 prophets of Baal. and They were all employed by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel because that's how religion works. And what that means is that in this system, it's the rich and it's the powerful who have access to God. They have a privileged position before God. And this is why Naaman appears before Elisha loaded with money. In verse 5, it says that he brought with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothes, uh, clothes were very expensive in that day. So this was an enormous sum of money. If you translate the, the, the measurements, that is 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. This was a staggering sum of money. But not only that, in verse 9, it says that he brought with him horses and chariots. Now, in the ancient world, you did not use a chariot for traveling. It was too heavy. It was too burdensome for that. A chariot was an instrument of war. It's basically the ancient equivalent of a battle tank. And so Naaman brings with him a battle tank. And notice it doesn't say he just brought one chariot. It brought, he brought with him many chariots, right? Chariots, plural. He brings with him basically a mini army. And so sort of picture this scene in your mind. It's almost comical. Here is Elisha's little hut. And then here comes Naaman in his battle tank, right? He's standing in his chariot, armed to the teeth, with his military behind him, right? This mini army with saddlebags loaded with gold and silver. Why is Naaman doing this? Because that is how religion works. In religion, God accepts you and God blesses you on the basis of your accomplishments, on the basis of your moral record. Remember what I said, religion was just a reflection of how the culture works, of how the world works, and the world is based on merit. Last week, uh, Christina and I, we went to the um, 
Castro Valley High School's uh, orientation for the parents of incoming ninth graders. And uh, our boy is about to enter high school, so it's, it's very exciting for us, our family. And so we went to all of the presentations, and in every class, the teacher talked about college prep. They talked about the requirements of getting into a UC. And as I was sitting there, it really brought back my own memories of high school. I remember, I remember this so vividly, my dad would bring me newspaper clippings from the LA Korean Times of college rankings, and then he would pin them up on the wall. And then at the end of every semester, depending on how my grades were doing, my dad and I would sort of adjust the range of colleges that we thought I could get into. And I would do all of these extracurricular activities to get into college. I remember this one time there was an open spot for 10th grade treasurer. So normally there were multiple candidates running for every office and then there would be an election. But that year, for whatever reason, 10th grade treasurer, nobody had signed up. So at the last second, I put my name in. Even though I had no interest in student government, I had no affinity or passion for student government, and I, was, I ran unopposed, so I was elected. And I remember one of the very first meetings, my school had what was called Spirit Week. And during Spirit Week, the officers of every class would have to give a kind of presentation during lunchtime to pump the spirit of the school. And uh, my fellow officers decided that for Spirit Week, we were going to do a choreographed dance of Criss Cross. Criss Cross was a hip-hop duo in the early 90s. They were known for dressing backwards, and they had this one hit song called Jump. Very catchy, popular in, the, in, in my day. And so all weekend long, my officers and I, we rehearsed this dance. We rehearsed the moves of the dance all Saturday, all Sunday, it was a very frustrating experience for my fellow officers because I, I'm, I'm a very awkward dancer. But why did I do it? Because I was trying to get into college. Because that's how college admissions works. That's how employment works. That's how the world works. That is how religion works. In religion, God is the admissions office. Okay. And at the end of your life, you have to submit your spiritual resume. And so he looks at your spiritual GPA, he looks at sort of the list of your life activities, and then he makes a judgment. Good people are in, and the bad people are out. Here's the problem with religion. If I can keep using the college analogy, how do colleges make their decisions? They do not use an absolute standard. They use a relative standard. What do I mean by that? They do not use an absolute standard. They do not have this unchanging, eternal, you know, perfect metric by which they measure and judge all students. They use a relative standard, which means they just, in any given year, they look at all the, all the students who apply, and then they pick out the best. They compare. They say, this student is better than that student. 
that's religion. This is why, this is why religious people are so insecure. Because they're constantly looking at other people. They're constantly comparing themselves to other people to see how they're doing. And therefore, they have to look down on other people. They have to disdain and they have to despise other people because that's how they know that God loves them, that God accepts them. They're using a relative standard. But the Bible says God uses an absolute standard. Leviticus 19, verse 2, God says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God's standard is perfection. He does not grade on a sliding scale. He does not look at the total pool of candidates to heaven and then pick out the best. But God demands absolute, sinless holiness. He demands um, moral perfection. Or think about it like this. Let me give you an analogy. Imagine there's a glass of water in front of you, okay? a glass of water. And in that glass, filled halfway, is poo. Okay? It's human excrement, human feces. Okay? Would you drink that cup? And you would, of course, say no. But what if somebody comes along and says, okay, Admittedly, that's bad. Who could drink it? But what if the cup was only 10% filled with feces? What if it's only a teaspoon of poo that we just sort of gently swirl into the water? Isn't that so much better? And you would say, no, it's absolutely disgusting. It's completely foul. It is totally undrinkable. That is the exact metaphor that the Bible itself uses. In Leviticus 18, verse 28, God says this, Your sins make you unclean, and therefore I will vomit you out. The Bible says that sin makes God vomit. And it doesn't matter if your sins are big or small, just like it doesn't matter if the glass is 50% filled with poo or 10%. God does not judge on a relative scale. And therefore, religion utterly fails because all religion can do is compare, but it cannot make you clean. And so how can you become clean? And that leads me to the second point, how grace works. So in verse 10, Elisha sends out his servant who tells Naaman, wash in the Jordan River, and you will be clean. And Naaman responds with fury. That's what the text says. In verse 11, he says, Naaman says, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me. And actually, in the Hebrew, the word order is reversed unnaturally, so that the emphasis is on the word to me. So literally, he says, I thought to me he would surely come out. Naaman is outraged. 
He's saying, do you know who I am? Do you know what I'm capable of? How dare you treat me like this? And then the text says, Naaman stomps away in anger. Now, why couldn't Naaman do it? Why couldn't he wash in the river? Is it because washing in the river is too hard? The answer is, no, it was because it was too easy. It was beneath him. This is what ultimately kept Naaman from God. It was his pride. That was the real disease. Not his skin condition, which is just on the surface, but on the inside, the real disease, the leprosy of his heart was pride. And so what offended Naaman is that anyone could wash in the river. Any fool, any coward, even a cripple could wash in the river, which is exactly the point. You see, Naaman had expected to go on some great quest. This is why he brought with him his his army, his military. He expected Elijah to come out and say, Oh, Naaman, oh, great general, you have asked for a great thing. To prove you are worthy, I will send you on an impossible quest. You must climb the highest mountain. You must slay the most ferocious monster. You must rescue the most beautiful princess. And then, and only then, I will heal you. This is why his servants had to say to him, Master, this is the great thing. For Naaman, the easiest thing was the hardest thing because he had to let go of his pride. He had to lay down all of his life accomplishments. All the things that made him great in the eyes of the world, he had to consider as rubbish And then he had to come to God as a spiritual beggar. He had to receive God's mercy and healing by faith alone. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I want you to see here that Christianity is utterly unique. It's not like any other religion in the world. All the other religions say good people are in, bad people are out. The hardworking are in, the lazy are out. But Christianity says it is the humble who are in and the proud who are out. And this is really hard for us to wrap our minds. But in the Bible, it says that it is your very goodness that keeps you from the grace of God. It's not that you're too wicked to believe, it's that you're too good. I remember years ago having a conversation with a friend and she was telling me about her father and I've never forgotten what she said. She said, my father is a really good man. My father is scrupulously honest in business. He's loyal to his friends. He's a good and loving father, faithful to his wife. And then she says, but, is not a Christian. And I asked her, why is he not a Christian? And she paused and she said this. She says, you know, it's his very goodness that keeps him away from Christ. In the end, he just doesn't think he needs the grace of God. Because grace comes to the lowly and to the undeserving. Do you notice in the story that Naaman keeps trying to go through kings? but God communicates with him only through slaves. 
Naaman goes to the king of Syria, then he goes to the king of Israel, because these are the people who really matter in the world. But God addresses Naaman only through servants. First through the Hebrew slave girl, then through Elisha's servant, and then through Naaman's own servants. What is God doing? God is destroying Naaman's problem. He's saying, I will only communicate with you through the lowly and the despised. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 27 to 29 says this. I think it's one of the most beautiful scriptures um, in the Bible. But God chose, listen, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. If you look at the biblical record, if you look at the history of the church, God works through the lowly and the outcast. Think about how God came into our world. He came in a lowly manger. And then look at all the great empires of the world, the Greeks, the Romans, the Persians, these great empires, but God chose this little Hebrew Jewish nation in Palestine. And then when Jesus was born, he was not born in in Jerusalem or some great metropolis. He was born in the little town of Bethlehem. He was raised in a poor family, and then he died a shameful criminal's death. And then he chose as his disciples, the people who would represent him, these uneducated fishermen. In the book of Acts, when the disciples began to preach the gospel, the educated classes laughed. They scoffed. Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness. It's foolishness to the perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Elisha tells Naaman, go and wash in the Jordan and you'll be clean. You need to understand that the Jordan River, compared to the rivers of Syria, you know, the Abana and the Farpar, these were beautiful, majestic rivers. They were fed by the mountaintops of Lebanon. They were these rushing, tumbling, crisp rivers, powerful rivers. But the Jordan River, I don't know if anyone's ever been to Israel, is this slow, meandering, muddy creek, not very impressive, but God uses that river to heal Naaman. Let me say one more thing and then we'll get to the last point. It's not an accident that this looks a lot like baptism. You know, baptism is the sign of becoming a Christian. Baptism is the uh, symbol of conversion. The way the symbolism works is that the waters of baptism washes away your sins. Now, What is the requirement for baptism? We're looking at this in the membership class, right? Only this. This is the requirement. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will surely be saved. That is it. Baptism itself, I want you to to understand, shows us the gospel, the act of baptism. Nobody sweats when they're being baptized. Do you know why? it doesn't take any effort. It's not an Olympic sport. 
All you have to do is stand and receive the waters. All you have to do is believe in Jesus as your Savior, and you will surely be saved. You will be clean. That leads me to the final point, the suffering servant. I want you to see that God's grace is free. It's free to the recipient, but it is not free to the giver. And you can see that in our story. Naaman is healed of his leprosy by grace. He doesn't have to pay anything, but there is someone who pays in the story. Did you notice? It's the Hebrew slave girl. In verse 2, it said, we're told that uh, she was taken in a raid by Syrian soldiers. Almost certainly, her family was killed. Her parents were killed. Uh, her siblings were killed. And then she's taken captive. She somehow survives alone, and then she becomes a slave. And the, uh, the Hebrew word that's translated little girl indicates that she was probably 12, maybe 14 years old. She's all alone in this strange and foreign land. And if you can imagine her life, every day of her existence is weeping and misery. Now, who is responsible for this? Who led the Syrian soldiers on this raid? Under whose command were they serving? And the answer is Naaman. Naaman is responsible for the destruction of her life. Name is responsible for the death of her family. And then one fateful day, Naaman gets leprous. And then suddenly, his life is in her hands. Because she knows how he can be saved. She knows how he can be made clean through the prophet Elisha. And so what does she do? She can say, good, let him suffer and die. I will dance on his grave. She can repay him for the evil that he did to her. But instead, she forgives him. And in verse uh, 3, she says, would that my Lord were with the prophet in Samaria. And you could just hear it right there. These are words of love. They're words full of tenderness and compassion. And so how did this girl do it? You know, to forgive someone when they have truly and deeply wronged you is the most difficult thing. Last year, um, Christina and I read uh, Tim Keller's book, Forgive. It's the last book he wrote before he died. It's one of the most beautiful, it's one of the most uh, challenging books I've ever read. And in the book, uh, he says that one of the chief metaphors for forgiveness in the Bible is this concept of canceling a debt. You could see it, for example, in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This idea of a debt, canceling a debt, I think is very helpful because it helps us to understand that when somebody wrongs us, the Bible says the perpetrator owes you a debt because wrongdoing always has a cost. Now, that is literally true if somebody steals money from you, 
or somebody bodily injures you, there is a tangible physical cost. But it is just as true if somebody maligns you, betrays you, deceives you, or in some way lets you down in a big way, the, the wound, the, the pain, the loss of that is just as real as anything physical. Now, what do you do with this debt? It doesn't disappear. It has to be paid. You have two options. You can either exact revenge, make the perpetrator pay, make them suffer, make them experience or try to make them experience a little bit of what you experience, and then what you get in return is a kind of justice because you're evening the score at least a little bit. Or you can forgive them. You can forswear vengeance. You can let God be the judge. Let God decide what is justice. And instead, you love them and you will their good. In which case, you pay. You suffer the loss. You absorb debt. I want you to know that in the story, the, slave, the Hebrew slave girl could have made Naaman pay. She didn't even have to do anything. All she had to do was stay silent. All she had to do was withhold this vital information about Elisha and then watch him writhe in agony. But instead, she forgives him. She refuses to retaliate. She absorbs the suffering of her life. And I want you to see that it is only because she pays the debt that Naaman is made clean. You see how that works? I want you to know that the Hebrew slave girl points forward to the ultimate suffering servant. The prophet, the prophet Isaiah speaks of a servant to come who will bear our griefs, who will carry our sorrows. Isaiah describes him as um, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus Christ is the ultimate suffering servant. On the cross, he lost everything. He lost his home. He lost his father. He suffered infinite agony and grief so that you and I might be forgiven, so we might be reconciled with God. That is the gospel. The gospel is grace and mercy flow to us free of charge, but only because it was costly to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see once again so clearly the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, washing away our sins. Help us to receive this by faith. Our natural instincts is that we want to earn it. <laughs> we want to present to you all of our merits. We want to boast. But give us your spirit that we might know we are spiritual beggars, that we are poor and needy, saved by grace alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.